When I met with the executive pastor at uh, Mega Church before I was about to be officially licensed for gospel ministry, I didn't expect our conversation to be all about taxes. Um, the main thing he wanted to impress upon me was not the responsibility of representing Jesus. Um, it wasn't the awesome privilege of getting to preach the gospel. Um, and it wasn't the importance of caring for the church. He wanted me to know that once this paper was officially signed, I could opt out of paying Social Security taxes. And so he spent the entire time of our conversation talking to me about the various problems, theologically, politically, with Social Security. But the good news was, if I could just fill out this form um, that said, I think Social Security is sinful and paying taxes is bad, then I wouldn't ever have to pay those again. And as long as I took care of retirement on my own, I'd be good. Um, now this week, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus also is going to find himself in kind of an unexpected conversation about taxes. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, people are coming up to him and asking, hey, is it lawful or is it right or is it not for us to pay these taxes to Caesar? But in this conversation with Jesus and our conversation this morning, it's really not ultimately about taxes although you can get a clue from what Jesus is going to say from the title of our sermon. But the larger question really is, what is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to the government? And what do we do when the government is asking us to do something that we believe might be sinful? And so if you have your Bible, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 19, and we're going to go just to verse 26. And so once again, if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Gospel of Luke. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and they sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightfully and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar's the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they weren't able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveled, marveling at his answer, they became silent. Grass withers and the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to, to marvel at you and at your word. Um, you would help us to hear it, um, to listen to it. Would it convict us? Would it encourage us? Would it sharpen us? And would we behold and marvel you in all of your glory? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. If you're taking notes in our bulletin, our, our first point this morning is that we need to give back to the government what it is owed. To give back to the government what it is owed. I'm going to give you that point now, and we're going to kind of dig into the text and find out what it means. And our first point is going to be a lot longer, because um, we're going to spend most of our time just wrestling um, with what the text means here, because it's kind of such a short passage. But in 19, again, the scribes and the chief priests... They seek to lay hands on him at that very hour. They perceive the parable that he told last week was against them, but they fear the people. Now, we hit this verse last week, but I want to, it bears repeating again here because it really ties into both of these sections. 
The religious leadership has had it with Jesus. They can't stand his popularity, his criticism of them. And so they are deciding they're going to kill him. And so 20, they watch him. They send spies who are pretending to be sincere that they can catch him in something he says. So to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Their plan is to watch closely. No longer are they just going to do it by themselves. They're also going to hire spies. And the goal of these spies is to trap Jesus, to catch him. They're stalking and they're waiting for him to slip up. The Greek here gives the sense like they're lying in wait. They're like robbers on the highway waiting for someone unexpected to come by that they can beat up. They're listening to every word and they're just waiting for him to misspeak or say something wrong or step into some controversy. Primarily, they want him to say something that's going to anger the Romans. Because if he makes the Romans mad, then they can have him arrested and handed over to the Roman governor to be killed. And notice the phrase here that describes the spies. It says, they pretended to be sincere. Now, it's not just that they're pretending to listen or they're pretending to be genuine. If you have the NASB, I think that translates this phrase best. It says, they're, you know, they're pretending to be righteous. Because the word there, it's the same word for righteousness, not just sincerity. And the description of pretending to do it, um, you may not, I don't know how fresh you up are in Greek, but it's one that you probably know because you can guess what it, sound, what it is from the English. It's the word for hypocritomai, to be a hypocrite. That's where we get that word from. So you could say that they are quite literally hypocritically putting on the face of righteousness as they come before Jesus. And it's not just the spies who are being hypocrites. It's not just the spies who are pretending to be righteous. It's really the scribes and the chief priests and all of the religious elite. They are the ones who are not truly righteous. They're only masks. And 21, so they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Come up to Jesus with all this empty flattery. Telling him how amazing he is, how right he is. They're just buttering him up. They're trying to lower his defenses. Tell him, well, we know you teach rightly. You know, you give it to us straight, Jesus. You don't sugarcoat things. You don't tiptoe around stuff because you're afraid it might make someone mad. You just say exactly what it is that you mean. And they say, oh, well, Jesus, you don't show partiality either. We know that you're not afraid to criticize those in power. That just as you've been criticizing the priests and the Pharisees, surely you're not afraid to criticize Rome, too. And he says, you truly teach the way of God. You tell us exactly what God means. You tell us what followers of God are supposed to do. And you can see how this is all just flattery. It's all just a setup. They want him to criticize Rome and get punished. And they say all of this before they get to the real question. The question in 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. Now on the surface, if you don't know everything under the scenes, it's a good theological question because it's a tricky one. They essentially want to know, should we or shouldn't we pay this tribute tax? It's kind of like a poll tax. It's a tax that has to go directly to Caesar. And to pay it is seen as endorsing the Roman Empire. It would be acknowledging that they have the right to rule over Israel. And it supports their sinful empire. The money is going to support their religious cults and the pagan temples. The money is going to further oppress the Jewish people who are being crushed by Rome. The tax was a symbol and a constant reminder that they have been conquered and they are being held under Roman rule and are not independent anymore. It's no wonder that they would hate having to pay it. It's not just a matter of complaining about the money. 
It's the theological implications of this. And it's how offensive it was for them to do so. It was so offensive, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who led a rebellion. Now, not the Judas who later betrayed Jesus. This was before that. It's kind of a common name. But there was a census. Everybody needs to go get registered in order to determine how much they got to pay for this tax, much like the one at the beginning of Luke we read many months ago. And so Judas started to encourage people, don't register for that tax. Don't pay those taxes. If you pay that tax, you are admitting that Rome has the right to the promised land, that it's not ours, it's theirs. And he built up a large following, and his followers went so far as to burn the property and harass and attack anyone who did pay the taxes. And his philosophy was described by an ancient um, historian as an invaluable attachment to liberty and said that God was to be their only ruler and Lord. We can understand why they might be very sympathetic towards that cause, and we all might be. And this rebellion, it was not ancient history. This happened around 6 AD during Jesus' own lifetime. It's not that long ago. There's people in the crowd who may have participated in it, or they definitely had an opinion on it. And that movement and that push is still there, and it's going to bubble up again, and it's going to lead to more rebellions that will result in the temple being fully destroyed and Jerusalem being decimated in 70 AD. So this isn't just a theological question. This is a politically charged question. It's a dangerous question. It's a question that's already got a lot of people killed and will get more killed. And it's a non-negotiable for Rome. To not pay this tax is seen as rebellion against Rome. If Jesus says, no, don't pay that, it would be seen as supporting another rebellion. It would be seen as challenging the might and authority of Rome. And if Jesus says, don't pay it, he's going to anger them. They can immediately run and tell the governor, hey, there's another Judas telling people not to pay their taxes. Just want you to know. You might want to do something about it before this gets out of hand. And if Jesus says, oh, no, we should pay this tax, well, he's encouraging idolatry. Jesus is a liberal. He's supporting Rome. He obviously can't be the Messiah because the Messiah came to set us free, not to leave us under its boot. The problem really isn't with their question, but the heart behind it. So they're not interested in the answer. Um, they just want Jesus to get it wrong. Don't really care what he says. I run into this sometimes as a pastor. Um, people ask me good theological questions, and I have to play a game of trying to quickly understand and guess why are you asking me this? Okay, because the heart behind the question is going to determine how I have to answer it. Um, a common one I might get is someone will ask me, well, hey, are you a Calvinist? And maybe they're asking me because they've had really terrible experiences with some, and so they want to know if I'm really terrible and bad. Or they might ask because they're a super one, and they want to make sure if I'm one of the good guys or not, and if I'm on their team. Or maybe they've just heard it somewhere, and they just generally have no idea what it means, and they just want to know. And now, the why behind that question is going to determine how I answer it. Okay, not because I'm trying to be deceitful or because my opinion is going to change or I'm going to hide it, but because the information I present to you is going to be different based on why you're really asking me. But Jesus, in 23, says, well, he perceives their craftiness and he says to them. Now, unlike me, Jesus doesn't have to do a lot of mental thinking and calculating to slowly figure out what's happening. Okay, he's the son of God. He made them all in their mother's wombs. He watched their first steps. He heard their first words. And he knew that they were going to ask this question before he made the world. And so, no, they're not going to be able to kill him a moment before he's ready. And so, 24, he says, show me a denarius. 
Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they say, Caesar's. So Jesus asked them a question in return. You don't want to get in a question off with Jesus. It will never go well for you. So first he asked them, show me a denarius. It's a Roman coin. And it's not just any Roman coin. It is the Roman coin that you need to have if you are going to pay this tribute that they're asking about. You can't pay it with any other currency that you want. You can't use a shekel. You can't use Jewish currency. You have to use this particular coin. And he asks them whose likeness is on it. He's really asking them whose image is on this coin. And what does the coin say? And he's going to get to the heart of the controversy here because the problem with paying this tribute is not just theological ramifications for having to pay a certain amount of money to Rome and to Caesar. It's not just what this money is going to go towards and what wicked and unlawful things. It's also that the very coin itself is blasphemous and idolatrous. Because written on the coin are the words Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It is a coin that declares Caesar is the son of God and is divine himself. And it has an image of said God. It's a violation of both the first and the second commandment. And the other side of the coin would have Caesar's wife. And it would depict her kind of as the personification of the Roman pox or the Roman peace. And the words around her likeness would say, high priest. So just that coin itself has some pretty significant theological claims. It's claiming that Caesar is God, or at the very least, he is the son of God, and his wife is the high priest of the Roman civil religion. You can understand why they might be uncomfortable with having to carry these around and having to use these coins to then affirm Caesar's rightful, claimed divine rule over God's people. So they're asking, do we sin when we hand this coin over? Do we sin when we buy these coins? But what's interesting about Jesus' question, he asks them to show him one. Now, Jesus knows what's on the coin. Everybody around knows what's on the coin. The stuff on the coin is a large part of the problem. But Jesus asks them to show him one because he wants them to reveal that they have it in their pockets. People who are coming to ask this supposed theological conundrum they have are carrying around these coins that they find so blasphemous. They claim to be sincere and deeply offended by these coins, but they're hypocrites. They don't mind keeping it in their wallets. They don't mind using it to buy other things. And the one word response that they give back to Jesus um, kind of reveals that he's caught them because they don't want to tell Jesus what the whole description is. They're like teenagers or like a child. When you catch them in trouble and you ask them a question and they just give you mumbled one-word answers under their breath. Jesus says, do any of you have a coin? And you kind of see him fumbling. I mean, yeah, I guess. You know, here. He said, oh, yeah, so what, uh, what image is on that? What does it say? Can you read it aloud? And they just kind of, oh, let's see. Okay, because if they really believed that it was sinful to do this, then they'd also believe these coins are wrong to have, and they wouldn't have it. But legalism is rarely consistent. Legalism is usually a lot more interested in what other people do than what you're doing. And so Jesus, in response, gives one of his most famous responses. It's concise, it's deep, but his answer is so good um, that a lot of people, even if they don't know very much of the Bible, have heard this phrase. In 25, he says to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, I imagine most of you don't normally use the word render in your everyday language. 
if I asked you what render meant, you might have to pull up to this first and then read it and kind of, you know, figure out and work backwards. Wait, what does that mean? Unless you work a lot with computers. Maybe you use it more often than I do in my everyday language. But what it means is give back what you owe. Give it back to who it belongs to. Return what you borrowed. That's Caesar's money. Let him have it back. Or, you know, pay your taxes. This is one of the most frustrating teachings of Jesus as well. Um, Jesus doesn't give us an out. I really wish he did, especially this time of year. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay taxes unless you, you know, it doesn't violate your conscience. And we would all say amen and we'd celebrate and return zero dollars in, in April. It'd be great if Jesus said that. It'd be great if Jesus said, hey, you don't have to pay taxes if it's going to sinful leaders. It'd be great if Jesus said, you don't have to pay taxes if it violates your conscience or your theological convictions. But Jesus says, pay your taxes. Give Caesar back what's his. Now, there's a lot of difficulty, and there's a lot of hard implications of what that means. Because this doesn't um, just have to do with what kind of tax do we need to pay. This really has to do with our obligation to government everywhere. And for us, too. So, okay, if they have to pay an unjust, and we would probably say, you know, even an illegal tax for an immoral purpose um, with pagan idolatry on top of it in order to support an unjust government and a religion that we profoundly disagree with, if they have to do that, what does that mean we then have to do too? Probably a lot that we don't want to. And remember, too, Caesar is not a Christian. Caesar's not a Jew. Caesar's not somebody who fears God in any sense of the word or is moral in any way at all. Caesar is the head of what most Jews would have seen as an evil empire that they were praying daily that God would destroy and deliver them from. And yet their Messiah says, yeah, give him his stuff back. And there are many things in this world that God in his sovereign choice and in his providence has decided to give human, very sinful governments authority over. And there are times that these governments do wrong things and they abuse their power and they use it in a way that does not honor God. And yet, we're to give and to submit to that government, not because we like who the leader is, not because we agree with the decisions being made or what's being out of, asked of us, but out of obedience to the God that we worship and the God that we follow. Now, all of us probably immediately, and you wish I would just jump to the exceptions, okay? That's what you're waiting for. Okay, I don't like this, it's uncomfortable, Tell, you know, get, let me out. Um, you know, we'll say, okay, I get it. I generally have to obey the government. I have to obey most of those laws, and maybe even if it's a bad law, or if it offends me, or even if it runs contrary to the Bible and Orthodox teaching, but what about blank? What about this? What about that? Well, my concern is... Um, so often we run to and we want to talk about the exceptions to the rule because we really just don't want to follow the rule at all. Because um, when I hear about the rule, I don't like it and it makes me uncomfortable. So tell me all the ways that I can get around it so I can just stop thinking about the rule and I can go back to doing what I am doing. Now, I could do that. Um, you know, I, I could stand here and I could give you a list of everything we don't have to give to the government and don't have to give to Caesar. And then we could all leave here feeling really good and feel like we know, okay, well, now I know what the government is supposed to do and what they have authority to ask for and what they don't. Um, I could give that sermon today, but I don't think, now I don't know, but I feel fairly confident that our country's government is not listening to me right now. 
Okay, I don't know for sure, but I'm fairly confident that our president isn't tuning in to Tanglewood today. I don't think our state's governor or our legislatures, our senators are, are, are here with us listening. I don't think they're all gathered around their computers to see what I'm teaching so that they can know. We got to write this down so that way we only do what God wants. Okay, so I'm not going to preach to them because they're not listening, but you're here. I'm going to preach to you. And most of us here um, aren't making these decisions. So we have to wrestle with, we have to give back to the government what it's owed. Our temptation, I think, for most of us is that we don't want to pay our taxes. We don't want to give back what's owed. But God commands us to. And the only exception that you really have is, is the government demands that you personally sin. And even when we have examples in Scripture, yeah, I'll give you that just so that I'm acknowledging there are some. Uh, but even when you read those, you almost always see in God's Word that Christians, when they do resist the government, when they do resist Rome, they do so peacefully, they do so passively, they do so humbly, and they cheerfully sit in jail and say, no, we don't mind. We're not going to stop preaching the gospel if you need to keep us here forever. That's fine. Um, we're just going to stay here and praise God and preach the gospel. So when I say, um, too, that the government asks and commands you to sin, I don't, that doesn't mean any time they ask you to do something you don't like doesn't mean anytime they ask you to do something you think is wrong and you don't want to, because even then I think we have to be careful. I hear Christians use that way too freely, and they'll use it to just excuse anything they don't want to do. After all, we got to remember this question um, that they're bringing to Jesus, Caesar is demanding, and he is asking them to give back something that they think it is sinful and is wrong to do so. And Jesus responds, give back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? So for most of us, I think we just have to wrestle with that. We've got to sit with and think through, well, what does it mean to give back to the government that God has sovereignly placed over us, even when the people that are elected aren't the ones you like, even if they're from the wrong party, even if they're making the wrong decisions, even when they're Caesar and when it's the Roman Empire, God commands us give back what they're owed. And I think that part of what this means is that we as followers of Jesus should be great citizens of whatever nation God's placed us in. And our, our submission and our obedience shouldn't depend on who Caesar is, but on who God is. Okay, I'm going to stop on that one. Now we'll get to the second one. It's not easier, in case you were hoping it was. <laughs> Point number two, give back to God what he is owed. Give to the government what we owe it and give back to God what we owe him. Now, that's a lot of setup. That's a lot of what we owe Caesar and the government, so we do need to wrestle with that. And whatever our political theology is needs to deal significantly with what Jesus teaches. But we can't stop there. Because the rest of what Jesus says is what we really have to take to heart, too. It's not just that we have to give to the government what we owe it, but we have to give God everything else. All of it. Read it again. He says to them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give back to God the things that are God's. So give back to Caesar what's rightfully his. Give to God what is his. So what's rightfully God's? What rightfully belongs to the creator of the universe who made all things? What rightfully belongs to the God who made you and who fashioned you in your mother's womb? Go back to Jesus' his question about the denarius. It's significant that Jesus asked that too. It's not just because he wanted us now to remember and learn about what Roman coins were like. It's not just because he's trying to point out the idolatry on us, it's because he's trying to make a significant theological point. Because Jesus didn't ask just whose likeness, whose inscription is on it. He actually asked whose image is on the coin. Oh, if the image of Caesar is on there, give back the image of Caesar to Caesar. Well, where is God's image? It's on us. 
We are all made in the image of God. We are all created in the likeness of the Godhead. When you look at a coin, you see the face of Caesar. In a much grander and a way deeper way, when you look at the face of another human being, when you look into their eyes, if you have eyes to see, you are looking at the likeness and the image of God. You are seeing a shadow of His reflection. This is why God cares so deeply about how we treat one another. This is why God commands us to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just an addendum. It's not just because God wants us to be nice to one another and to get along. It's because the way that we treat one another reflects how we view God. The way you treat someone made in the image of God, it is as if you are doing that to God himself, to his representative. And so if we ourselves are made in the image of God, and if we're to give back to God his likeness, what does that mean for us? Well, that means a lot. Probably means we got to give him back everything. But it also means we're to give him back ourselves. That we offer up not the blood of goats and sheep and rams, but ourselves as worship. That we present ourselves, as Romans tells us, as living sacrifices. It means that everything that we do, we do it as image bearers of God, and we do it to give it back to Him in the way that we image Him and represent Him in the world. So we have to give back to God the things that are God's, and that's pretty much everything. Everything that we have and everything that we are is His. Everything that we have, everything that we will be, everything that we could do. And so, too, when we are supposed to give back to Caesar, give back to the government the things that are it, it has nothing to do with Caesar. It has nothing to do with the government. It has nothing to do with what it is and isn't supposed to do. It has everything to do with giving things back to God and honoring Him. Because we, when it comes to this, it shouldn't really matter who Caesar is at all. That we shouldn't care what kind of government is over us. It shouldn't matter what kind of country we live or serve in, whether it's the most righteous, amazing, best Christian democracy or an evil tyranny. We give to Caesar what's his because we're giving to God what is his. It's not ultimately going to Caesar at all. It's going to God. It's not that we give Caesar 10% and God gets 90. He gets most of it. It's God gets 100%. And one of the ways we give it to him is by giving to Caesar what is his. And so we do it even when we don't understand it and even when we don't like it because we are trying to be obedient to the God that we worship. That is what we should care about. And that is what should motivate us. Now many of you, um, you probably have or did have at some point, right, a parent tax. Maybe you can think of it um, when your kids get back from Halloween and it's time to dump out all the candy on the floor. Okay, you've been driving them around all day, and now it's time for the parent tax. You're going to look through and see what candy you would like to take. Okay, or you go to a restaurant, and you get them all food, and then, you know, it's a parent tax. I'm going to take some of your fries. It's, why? Because they're really yours. Okay, you're the one who did all of the work here. It's your right as a parent. You've, you need to be properly compensated for all of your time and all of your effort. And really, you've paid a lot more money than just the money and the gas and the money for those fries. Okay, God's kind of like that, but he doesn't just want a little bit. In a much greater sense, he doesn't just want a percentage of our income or our tithe. He wants all of it, and he wants all of us. 
And ultimately, what does God want from us? As our call to worship this morning reminded us, God isn't interested in our money or in our things. God isn't interested in sacrifices. He's not interested in big checks or in large monuments or cathedrals built to his glory and honor. He's interested in you giving all of yourself to him in worship. And God wants you to give yourself to him and wants us to give him our faith and our love. And he wants us to to love him with all that we have and with all that we are, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, all of ourselves. And they realize that Jesus is saying this, which is why in 26, they weren't able in the presence of the people to catch him on what he said, but they just marveled at his answer and became silent. It stuns them because they realize of how much God is really asking for. It's not just to the implications for Caesar and Rome, but it's, oof, if that's what God wants, that's a lot. And it's impossible to do that fully on our own. Now, one of the best parts of paying taxes is if you can get a tax return back. Right, after filling out all those annoying forms and going through the big process and sending the government some of your money to find out they actually owe you some money. And maybe they even send you a check. That's not quite how the gospel works. It works a little differently. Some people, that's how they imagine it works. That's how they think about following God, that we need to give God everything that he's owed. We've got to follow all the rules. We've got to do it all right. We've got to love him completely and fully. And maybe if I check all the right boxes, if I fill all the right forms, if I say all of the right words, if I believe exactly all the right things that I need to do, then God will accept my sacrifice, and then I'll get a good return of salvation and blessing. The beauty of the gospel is that God owes us nothing at all. We owe him everything. He doesn't need to give us a single thing in return, and yet he gives us everything back. Jesus came down to earth to bring love and salvation, not just to those who paid all their taxes to God first, but to those who didn't. To those who have been running from him, for those who have cheated God, who have cursed him and who have mocked him, and even for those, as we'll read later, killed Jesus. Yet Jesus came to give them everything. And so we, if we're followers of Jesus, if we have believed in the gospel and if we believe in Jesus, we should give everything to God, not because we're trying to earn something back, but because he's already given everything to us. And that we just do it out of obedience and out of response. That we should give all of ourselves back to God, not in an effort um, to make him happy, not in an effort to manipulate or to earn something, but just because we can't help it. Because of everything that he has done, for you and for me. And so give back God what he is owed. Not out of obligation, but out of worship. And out of joy. Because of what he's already given you. Now, back to my story at the beginning. Um, I ended up not filling out that form. Um, partially because as I read it and looked at it more closely, I realized it wasn't just that I'd have to say, yeah, I don't want to pay these taxes. I think it's wrong. So that I'd then have to say, well, I think anybody getting any kind of Social Security money from the government is in sin. And I wasn't willing to stand up and preach that kind of sermon. So I didn't do that. But ultimately, it was studying this passage too. Started to recognize, you know what? I don't just have to give the government the things that I think is right and the things that I agree with and can support biblically. Um, 
I have to do things even I don't want to do, and even things that seem like they're going to cost me a lot right now, because we made almost no money. I was making $800 a month, and that's what we were living off of. And I did it because I wanted to obey Jesus. You know, that's a small decision. It was, felt big then, but I don't know what decisions you have before you today. You know what decisions you're going to have before you as you get all your tax stuff together. Maybe some of you have already finished that, and you're, you're ahead of the game. But I want us to, to know that as we leave this place, uh, I hope that we choose to give back God all that he owes. And we should give him all, all that we are and all that we have because of what he's already given us out of worship. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to transition to a time of communion. But Lord, I just want to thank you. Um, Lord, that you are, are not a God who comes pounding on our door, demanding that we give you what is rightfully yours, although you could, and you would be right and just in doing so. But instead, you, you stand outside our door and you knock, and you just ask to be let in so that you can give us new life, so you can give us all the blessings that come from loving and from following you. Lord, would you help us to open the door? If there are those here who do not know you, who are not followers of you, would, would they hear you knocking? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you encourage them to open the door and to see the life that you can bring and the life that you give through your Son? Oh Lord, for those of us who do follow you, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to submit to the government that you've placed over us, not because we care about it, but because we care about obeying you. And would you help us to, to worship you and to give you all of ourselves and to image you rightly in the world because we love you. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Praise God. Hear this benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.